Well, this weekend culminated months of hard work for over 100 theater students at Watauga High School. Susical the Musical first performed on Broadway and celebrating the writings of Dr. Seuss was ambitiously performed at, at the high school on Thursday, Friday, and Saturday evenings. An amalgamation of 18 uh, of Dr. Seuss's books, the two-hour show contained over 30 original scores. Uh, equally as impressive as the vocal and acting skill of the cast was the amazing set, costume, and makeup design. It was incredible. Lots of colors and imaginative costumes and makeup. Oh, the things you can think. It really helped make the show come alive and transport the audience into the world of, of Seuss. Now, I share all of that for a couple of reasons. First, to celebrate and congratulate a great show in our community in which about a dozen of our uh, Alliance youth participated, several in the uh, room here this morning. I enjoyed giving you a, on Thursday evening as I watched it, a well-deserved ovation. But I also um, believe, uh, share it because I believe it illustrates our text well this morning. You see, if those dozen students, some sitting in the room this morning, or even the entire cast of Seussical showed up today in full costume, I suggest that you would have no trouble picking them out. In fact, you would think them a bit strange, odd, ill-fitting. They, 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 they sure would not look like us. They, they had, they've taken off everything that every one of us typically wears, laid it aside, and put on something different. Bright colored clothes with feathers and lace, oversized glasses and ears, weird hairdos and makeup. And, and, and then if they broke out in song, uh, their words would be different. It would rhyme and be nonsensical. And after listening for a few moments, you'd figure it out, oh, they're followers of Seuss. It made me wonder, do we put forth that much effort, they work six days a week, by the way, do we put forth that much effort to lay aside the old, the stuff of this world, to put on new and be different like that, so people can know that we are followers of Christ, you know, by the way that we dress, by the way that we talk, and the way that we act. After writing for three chapters about the ways God has richly blessed us in Christ, Paul has now called us to match our walk to our new lives. And he goes on to describe that walk in the rest of the book of Ephesians. You remember he started in, in chapter 4, verses 2 to 16, describing a walk of unity. Last week, he transitioned to a walk of purity. He commanded us to no longer walk like Gentiles. He described those Gentiles unbelievers as futile in their thinking, darkened in their understanding, ignorant, hard-hearted, resulting in a complete alienation from God. And so, they, he said, they've become callous, insensitive to God, His purposes. They pursue a life of sensuality and impurity with, with greediness, which means they have this continual, insatiable desire for more and more sin. But Paul said, we did not learn Christ that way. We were taught to take off the old self and to put on the new. It's created in 
the likeness of God in righteousness and holiness and truth. And those words gave the image of laying aside clothing and putting on something entirely new, something different, so people can tell by looking at us that we are followers of Christ. I suggest that people ought to be able to tell just hanging out with us for a little while. I'm not asking you to dress. Don't dress like the Susical people. I suggested that, that if they just hung out with us for a little while, they could tell that we're different. We look different. We sound different. We talk different. We value different. We've laid off the old. We've put on the new. Now, While Paul was talking about our initial salvation in early days of discipleship, when we learned Christ, we should never think that we're done with this process of growing in Christ-likeness. Yes, you've laid off your old selves. You've been created new people, but we still live, don't we, in a fallen world in this not yet perfected flesh. And so Paul goes on to describe what this new life of righteousness and, and holiness in truth looks like. Here are some, here are some things that you, should, that you should put off. Here's some, some things that you should put on. Here are some ways that you can look different. Read the text with me, Ephesians chapter 4, verses 25 and following say this, therefore, laying aside, taking off falsehood, speak Truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, for we are members of one another. Be angry, and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and do not give the devil an opportunity. He who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, performing with his own hands what is good, so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away. Take that off, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, at first reading, this seems a bit like a laundry list of do's and don'ts. And they're going to be tempted to kind of cut this out of your Bible and hang it on the mirror. And there is a sense in which this is a, a vice list like the vice lists of that day. There are a number of imperatives, commands, about a dozen of them in this passage. But But you need to know there's actually an intentional order to what Paul, deliberate order to what Paul says, and he structures it in this very deliberate, understandable way so that we can get it. See, Paul actually gives us here five basic commands with the following primary order. First, he he basically says, don't do something. Don't do this. This is something that you should have have taken off when you laid aside the old person. Then he says, instead, I want you to do something different. This is something that you should have put on when you put on the new self. In other words, this is how followers of Christ look. This is the makeup. This is the costume. This is that weird hairdo and and makeup that we should put on, only it really is the real you. And third, then, he gives, this is the theological basis or the theological rationale 
for the command. This is the pattern that he follows in four of the five basic commands in this text. And in one of them, the second one, we'll see that, he only switches, switches it around a little bit. So, for example, no, notice this, verse 25. Here's the negative command. Um, Lay aside falsehood. Stop lying. Here's the positive command. Instead of lying, speak true. And, and then here's the theological basis for it. For we are members of one another. Verse 28. Here's the negative command. Steal no longer. Positive command. Instead of stealing, well, this is odd, work. And, and then here's the theological reason so that you can share with those in need. Verse 29. Negative command. Let no unwholesome words come out of your mouth. Positive command, instead, speak good words for, for building up, for edification. Theological basis, so that it will give grace to those who, who hear. You see then there this very deliberate pattern that Paul uses. He does that so we can map, wrap our minds around the text. So, let's look at each of these five basic commands, keeping in mind, here's what I want you to do. It's time for some self-examination. This is what we should take off. This is what we should put on. This is why. How am I doing? How am I doing? You want an outline? Comes around those five commands. First, speak truth. Second, oddly enough, be rightly angry. Third, work. Fourth, speak good words. And last, be tender. Be, or be kind, be tender, and be forgiving. Now, all of these actions deal primarily with relationships with one another in the body of Christ, that is, um, uh, with other believers. He's going to make that clear as we make our way through the text. But it, certainly we should seek to be this way, though, with non-believers. In other words, when we put off the old self, we don't put it back on on Monday. We are to be people characterized by these qualities. This is how people hanging out with us can tell they're different. Starting with followers of Jesus speak truth. They speak truth to each other, verse 25. Negative command, we've laid aside falsehood. More, more literally, we've, we've laid aside lying. Lying, deceit, falsehood, dishonesty, white lies, stretching the truth. That is the way of the world. You know, there's even an expectation that people generally don't tell the truth. Did you know that? It's why we put them under oath before they can give testimony in a court of law. Chant of the Bible, raise your, left hand of the Bible, raise your right hand. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth now? Because we know you normally don't. Jesus even said, oaths ought not to be necessary for his followers. He even said, don't take oaths. You shouldn't have to. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. Because my followers ought to be people of integrity. They ought to be telling the truth. Our word ought to be our bond. No swearing. Don't have to. Speak truth, each one of you, to his neighbor. It's a quote of Zechariah chapter 8, verse 16. Rich theological context there. In Zechariah chapter 8, verses 1 to 15, 
And Zechariah says, listen, you've been in captivity because you deserved it. But now I'm going to be kind to you. I'm going to bring you back. I'm going to establish a new people in my holy city in Jerusalem. And the very first thing that he says is, I want you to speak truth. Very interesting. The very first thing that Paul says, having talked about this new humanity that God's creating, Jews and Gentiles. Here, this first, I want you to speak truth. Notice the all-encompassing nature of the command. Each one of you, each one of you, that's everybody, and by the way, all the time. Listen very carefully. There are no situations where you need to question whether or not the truth is warranted. You do not have to determine, is the truth the right thing to do right now? Now, there may be times that we withhold the truth. I'm not going to get into all of that. But you do, you do not have to question, is, would it be better for me to lie? Let me just tell you right now, the answer to that question is no. We are people of truth. To his neighbor, would it include everybody, but Paul applies it specifically to one another when he gives the theological basis, when he says, for we are members of one another. We belong to each other. We're members of the same body. That point he's made abundantly clear throughout his letter. Since we belong to each other, we tell the truth to each other. Why? Help me understand. Why would I lie to someone I belong to? Why would I do that? One author described it this way. The nose would not lie to the mouth. There's nothing wrong with that rotten egg salad. Why, why would it do that? The, the, the eyes would not lie to the hands. There's no heat in that fire. The, the eyes would not lie to the feet. There's no snake on the path. We tell the truth because the truth is what is best for the body. For unity, for purity, for building us up in love. Simple questions. Are you known for your truthfulness? Are you known to be a person of integrity? Can your word always be trusted? Do you always tell the truth or only as it suits the occasion or your best interests? Do you stretch the truth to protect yourself or to make yourself look better? Do you fabricate facts and details to enhance your self-image or diminish the image of others? Are you a person of truth consistently, constantly, all the time? That's what you should look like. Second, be rightly angry. That's interesting and challenging. It's commanded in verses 26 and 27. In fact, it is so challenging that interpreters through the centuries have tried to find a way around it. Because you need to understand that anger is almost universally condemned in Scripture. For example, James says that the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. In fact, anger appears in almost every vice list of the day. In fact, in most vice lists in the New Testament. In verse 31 of our text, Paul is going to say, let all bitterness, all bitterness, and all wrath, and all anger be put away from you. Certainly, he cannot be commanding us to be angry in verse 26, right? Actually, he does. And he does so by by quoting another Old Testament passage, this one's Psalm 4. 
Context there is very important. David in Psalm 4 has been unjustly or wrongly charged. He's been sinned against. He's going to rejoice that God will ultimately vindicate vindicate him. But in the meantime, he urges himself and he urges his readers to include those who were sinning against him, don't sin. He says, tremble in anger, but don't sin in doing so. And so, Paul quotes that and gives us an imperative that is a command when he says, be angry. And what we learn from David and Paul's quote of David is there is such a thing as anger without sin. You perhaps heard it called righteous indignation or righteous anger. Obviously, anger itself is not intrinsically evil because we read in many places in the Bible where God is angry or He's filled with wrath, but He is always rightly angry. You see, God is angry when He or His purposes have been opposed or offended. He is angry when he or his children have been sinned against. And so what we learn is that being angry at unrighteousness has its place. That's why James actually said, everyone must be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. He didn't say never be angry, slow to become angry. Why should we be slow? Because the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. You see, our anger should be against unrighteousness. Now, get this. Our anger should be against unrighteousness, not because we're unrighteous. Our anger has its limits. We can be angry, but let's be honest, much of the time, our anger becomes misplaced, selfish, reproachful, vengeful, bitter, in a word, sinful. So, Paul says, Be angry at sin, be angry at unrighteousness, but don't sin in your anger. John Stott says it this way, I go further and say that there is a great need in the contemporary world for more Christian anger. That sounds like an oxymoron. We human beings compromise with sin in a way in which God never does. In the face of blatant evil, we should be indignant, not tolerant. Angry, not apathetic. If God hates sin, His people should hate it too. If evil arouses His anger, it should arouse ours also. By by the way, this is the one command of the five where Paul reverses the order. He gives a positive command first to be angry, then follows it with a negative because that's more of the problem. Don't sin in your anger. In fact, he says, to guard against your righteous anger turning to unrighteous anger, Paul cites a proverbial truth. I say proverbial because a a number of extra-biblical writers and philosophers state this same truth. In fact, it was thought to be a a, a circulated, um, well-reasoned, well-known piece of wisdom, do not let the sun go down on your anger. Try to resolve the reason for your anger quickly is the idea. Paul is giving a time limit for your anger, knowing that if you nurse it, if you hold on to it, it will turn to sin. Now, Paul's not giving a specific deadline here, you know, sundown. 
Uh, otherwise, you can be angry till about 7 this evening, till about 9 in June, but only till about 4.30 in December. Now, he's citing a proverbial truth. Here's what he's saying. Keep your anger in check. Keep it on a leash. Keep it short. Don't brood. Don't run the risk of turning it into vengeful bitterness. So, if you or someone else is wrong, sinned against, and it arouses feelings of righteous anger, that's fine. But do something about it. Now listen, in fact, take notes, write this down. Seek gracious confrontation, godly reconciliation, and forgiveness. Then he goes on to give the theological basis for these commands. By doing so, you will not give the devil an opportunity. Now, what's that mean? Well, Paul doesn't tell how the devil uses the opportunity. Later in this book, he's going to talk about the devil's schemes and fiery darts that are unleashed against us. The point here seems to be that when you allow your anger to control you, rather than controlling your anger, when your anger is prolonged and becomes sinful, you give the devil an opportunity to use your sinful anger against you, to exploit you, to influence you. I find it very interesting that he doesn't cause your anger, he uses it against you. You give him the opportunity to breed continued strife and discord in the community of believers. And he says, don't do that. And by the way, while this devil-granted opportunity, opportunity is applied to anger, it's true for all of these negative commands. Falsehood, lying, unrighteous anger, stealing, evil words, bitterness, they all give the devil a foothold to use it against you. It's a good reason to take these things off. So, believers must put off lying, put on truth. They must put off unrighteous anger, put on only righteous anger with limits. And third, believers must put off stealing and put on honest work, verse 28. You see, in Paul's day, there was no such thing as welfare, no such thing as public assistance, actually, of any kind. If work was available, you worked and provided for yourself and your family. If work was not available, you became a thief. In fact, that's literally what the verse says. The thief must steal no longer. It was a common practice. Uh, yeah, it was widely understood to be wrong, but it was, after all, seemingly necessary. And Paul says, no, it isn't. This is a principle I want you to get. It is never right to do wrong so that right may result. It is never right to do wrong so that my, I got to feed my family, don't I? Yes, you do. So I got to steal, don't I? No, you don't. It is never right to do wrong so that good may result. You're a believer and stealing, and by the way, lying is always wrong. So he who steals must steal no longer. Rather, Paul says, he must labor. And the word for labor, word for work, is a very strong one. It speaks of, 
of laborious toil to the point of exhaustion. And most feel that Paul picked that word on purpose because thieves found that stealing was a whole lot easier than an honest day's labor. Paul said, work. Even, listen, Christians, work. Even if it's laborious, exhausting toil, work. Perform with your hands that which is good. Stealing is not good. Honest labor is good. Now, I could spend some time talking about the dishonest ways that we labor today. That is, how employees steal from their employers every day by not working hard. I want to suggest, this is just for your consideration, that withholding your best is stealing. Taking extra long breaks, not being honest on your time cards, showing up late, borrowing company supplies for personal use, spending company time on the internet or with personal emails. I could talk about how people steal from the government by not paying honest taxes. There are lots of ways that Christians steal today besides shoplifting. I think we get the point. Christian workers need to be above reproach. I want to suggest that Christian workers should be the hardest working on the staff. I didn't say the best. Some people may be more skilled than you, but no one should work harder than Christian workers. Anything less than your best is stealing. Christian students need to be honest, need to do honest work. That means no cheating, no plagiarism, because plagiarism is, after all, stealing. I will leave you to fill in the blanks. So you just did. No, there's a whole lot more uh, uh, of what he who steals must steal no longer means in your context. But what is the theological basis for this command? It's very interesting what Paul says and what Paul does not say. He does not say, work hard so that you can provide for you and your family's needs, although that is certainly right and proper. Work hard. It's your responsibility to take care of you and your family's needs. That's fine. It's not what he says. He says, so that the worker will have something to share with the one who has need. As I said, there was no governmental public assistance program. And so here Paul calls on believers to work hard, not to enrich themselves while others suffer, but to help those in the church family who have need, who need help. We see that the early church did this very well in the book of Acts. This is actually unbelievable. And the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. I'm going to ask some of you for your car keys this afternoon. But all things were common property to them. For there was not a needy person among them. Not one. For all who were owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. That's not communism. That's called community. 
And that's amazing. That's different. And I want to suggest that's Christian. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul is talking about sacrificial giving, in a verse that we often hear and quote, he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, but he, and he's talking about giving, and he who gives bountifully will also get bountifully. Yeah. And, and so the motivation to give a lot is to get a lot. Because after all, God loves a cheerful giver, right? Right. That's what Paul said. It's true. And so we give a lot to get a lot. Yeah. And then Paul goes on in verses 10 and 11 of that chapter to tell us why we get a lot. Now, he who supplies God, who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed so you can spend it on yourself for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness, and you will be enriched in everything for all liberality. That means so you can give it away which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. You give so that he will give you more, so that you can give more, so that you can care for others, increasing the harvest of your righteousness. And so Paul actually says here, stop stealing. Work hard so that you can get a lot, so that you can give it away. That's what Christians do. And by the way, while I'm on the topic, I am so encouraged by this church and our giving. Not just to the general fund to meet the needs of the ministries of this church, that's good. Not just the giving to the building fund so that we can build a larger facility to continue to meet the, the ministry needs of this community, that's good. But things like giving to the benevolence fund to meet the needs of brothers and sisters. Scott reminded us a couple of uh, weeks ago, that a quarter of a million dollars has been given through the Benevolence Fund in the last five years to meet the needs of the body. I celebrate that. A quarter of a million dollars that you have given. You could have bought a new car. You laid it at the leader's feet to be distributed as there was need. And your, and your, and your giving, your sacrificial giving to meet the needs of others has rubbed off on your kids. They, last weekend, they gave and they raised almost $21,000 for an orphanage in Uganda. That, that, is, that is working to support the needs and care for others. I celebrate that. Fourth, very quickly. Oh, I'm out of time. I got two more points. Verse 29, speak good words. First, the negative command. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. Unwholesome means rotten. It was used of rotten wood or rotten fruit or rancid fish. Have you ever smelled rotten fruit or rancid fish? That is what unwholesome talk smells like. Let no rotten words that bring harm come out of your mouth. We should not just think profanity, although it includes that. In the context, it's words that tear down rather than build up. Listen to this list. I want you to let them sink in. Harsh, rude, sarcastic, unkind, harmful, abusive, 
vulgar, slanderous. These words have no place in the mouth of a believer. You just took away all my humor. Instead, use only words which are good for edification. That means building up according to the need of the moment. Don't miss what Paul is saying. In the previous command, he said, share physically with those who have physical needs. Now he says, share verbally with those who have spiritual or emotional needs. Use your words to build up the same way that you use your resources to meet needs. You ever thought of it that way? Theological basis, so that it will give grace to those who hear. Harmful, hurtful words don't bring grace. Well-chosen words which bring healing, comfort, wholeness, encouragement, forgiveness, peace, and joy bring grace, benefit, and favor to those who hear. By the way, this was the team verse for our girls' basketball team this year. I actually had them memorize it. The ones who are on the team could stand up right now and, 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 and quote it. I told them, first day of practice, I only want good words to each other, to opponents who happen to be your sisters in Christ, and to refs. And all season long, I got comments from opposing coaches and opposing players and parents and refs of what good sports our girls were. They were being different. They were being followers of Christ. And then Paul sticks in an interesting verse in the middle of all this, verse 30. Most agree it has direct application to using good words, but also application to all of these commands when he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. We learned about that sealing in chapter 1. He is the guarantee of our future redemption. When we were received our initial redemption, we were sealed, which by the way also carries with it the idea of ownership, and he's going to carry us all the way to our future full redemption. In the meantime, He indwells and owns us. And he, as He lives with us, He encourages righteousness. And so, when we allow unwholesome talk, remember that list, vulgar, hurtful, harmful words to come out of our mouths, we grieve Him. When we lie, we grieve Him. When we lose our tempers, Dads, we grieve Him. When we steal, not giving our best, we grieve Him. When we are bitter or angry, when we clamor and slander, we grieve Him. This is the ultimate theological basis for pursuing righteous, to please rather than grieve the Holy Spirit of God, which leads to our last point. Very quickly, be kind. Christians are supposed to be kind, tender, and forgiving people. Negative first, let all by the way, please notice the word all, which means there are no justifications for any of the, you, you, you have no idea what this person has done to me. I have every right to be bitter. Let all unrighteous bitterness, 
and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away with you from you with all malice. Paul seems to move from the inside out, from this inner resentful attitude of bitterness through indignant outbursts of anger and seething rage. That's what those two words mean, to public shouting and screaming and and arguing uh, to abusive language and cursing, which abusive language includes gossip. All that is slander. (coughs) Put these away from Take this off. It should not describe followers of Christ. Instead, believers are to put on different qualities. He says, first, be kind to one another. Again, we see the primary application here is toward other believers. Be kind. We're reminded that God was kind toward us. We're also reminded that kindness is a fruit of the Spirit. And this reminds us that all of this we can only do as we daily surrender to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Be tenderhearted. Interesting word. It speaks of compassion. In fact, the word originally spoke of the of the inner organs. It spoke of the gut. It's actually the word from which we get our word spleen. It's the word that Matthew used of Jesus when he looked at the people harassed without a shepherd, and he had a sick feeling in his gut. It's called splankna. It's compassion. We too are to be tender, compassionate toward others. Sick feeling in our gut at the plight of other people. And we're to be forgiving. You see, the antidote to bitterness, wrath, and anger is forgiveness. Can I tell you something? You will be wronged. You will be sinned against even by other believers. And you might for a moment feel righteously indignant. But as we seek to live in the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, we need to be forgiving people. As believers wrong us, and they will, and they seek appropriate repentance, we forgive as God in Christ has forgiven us. What that means is we do not hold it to their account. Theological basis, because God in Christ has forgiven us. Can I remind you that we have been the offending party because every sin is ultimately committed against God, and yet as we sought repentance, He graciously granted forgiveness and forgiven people. Listen, listen to me. Forgiven people should be forgiving people. That's the theological basis. I'm done. Christians put off lying, put on truth. Christians are righteously angry against sin, but they seek godly reconciliation. Christians put off stealing, and Christians work hard. Christians put off rotten, smelly words and seek good words to build up. And Christians put off bitterness and and anger and malice, and they put on kindness and tender compassion and forgiveness. This, you see, is how we look to each other and to an unbelieving world. Let's stand for prayer. Father, that's a lot of information um, to take in. That's a, that, 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 is, that, that is a 